Today's guest is Dan Moore. He's the head of DevRel at Fusion Auth and the author of Letters to a New Developer, which I love the subtitle. It's uh, what I wish I had known when starting my development career. And if I could run, re rewind my clock, I would love to read this book and be prepped for the career that I had in development. But thanks for joining me today, Dan. Hey, thank you so much for having me, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. So for those who have not met you, had a chance to talk to you, had a coffee or whatever with you, a drink with you, uh, talk about your background, where you uh, are from, who you are, and what you do. Sure. So my current job is a head of DevRel at a company called FusionAuth. We are an authentication and authorization provider that helps development teams take something that is kind of scary and um, undifferentiated off their plate and get back to work building features that users want. Hmm. Um but I've been in the tech industry for about 20 years, actually coming towards 25, and I've done all kinds of roles. I've been a uh, employee, I've been a contractor, I've been a startup CTO, I've been a technical trainer, I've, uh, I'm in developer relations right now, I've been an engineering manager, a consultant, worked at product companies. Hmm. And so kind of a breadth of experience um, has mostly focused on smaller companies in the Denver, Colorado, USA uh, metro area, um, although I have worked for other companies in other uh, parts of the country. Interesting. So rewind that a little bit as you're, you know, you're here in the United States, so I can say high school, not, you know, a lot of people, not everybody I interview are in the U.S. So we got to calculate their school systems. Yeah. But for you, high school, as you were, does it, is technology something you were interested in high school or is that something that came along later? Yeah, so I it was a little bit earlier, actually, than that. So um, I do remember, though, seeing the first Netscape Navigator come out in high school, and it was just amazing because um, we'd used Gopher before that a little bit, which was still pretty cool. But um, actually, kind of the moment where I decided... Looking back, the moment where I think technology decided, uh, yeah, excuse me. Looking back, I think the moment that I decided technology was for me is when I was working for my parents. They had a small insurance brokerage, and there was a legal requirement to send out letters to everybody whose policy was expiring. And it was a real bear of a job, especially as you started to get more and more, you know, tens, hundreds of people that were need those letters and they were doing it via copy and paste Oof. and then printing it out, sticking it on an envelope, stamping it, mailing it. And I was getting dragged along because my parents needed my help at like minimum wage. And I said, there's gotta be a better way to do this. And I'd been playing around with word perfect macros. And I discovered that you could do this thing called mail merge, which for your listeners who are young, um, is kind of like email merge, <laughs> but, um, so I started to set up a database and, then we had a database of when people were, um, when their policies were expiring and what their address was and you press a button and and there's still some grunt work, right? You still have to like print it out, st stuff it. But that moment when I could push a button and take hours of time that were miserable and turn it into minutes or seconds was really a, a moment where I was like, wow, this this technology can really, really help reduce human misery. It certainly reduced my misery. And that's kind of when I got into technology. Interesting. So then with that interest in the family business, uh, did you did you go to college? And then did that drive what you studied? Yeah. So actually, uh, you know, being a teenager, I 
did that and then immediately kind of thought about doing something else, something different. <laughs> and I did go to college uh, and I ended up picking a liberal arts school in Walla Walla, Washington called Whitman. And I went there because it wasn't in Colorado, which is where I was from. It wasn't in the, in California. It was West Mississippi. Those were my, my location criteria. And then it had um, a lot of support for a lot of subjects I was interested in. And actually what I thought I was going to do in um, when I went to college was actually write science fiction. Huh. So I got a degree from a liberal arts, liberal arts college in physics to like give me a foundation to write science fiction. Yeah. Uh, but I did end up working for the technology department at the college and wrote some web applications and things like that and got an internship or two that were tech related. And then I got a, an internship right after college at a, at a tech company. And this was in 1999. So your listeners who know history might know things were kind of going gangbusters in 1999. It seemed like a great place to get into. And so that's uh, how I got into my professional career. And depending on the company, it was gangbusters for a very short period of time. <laughs> yeah, we had uh, we had layup. We were gonna we were gonna open. It was a consulting company that grew to like six hundred people. We were gonna open a an office in Singapore and London. I was planning to pack my bags mentally, and then you know six months later we had layoffs. Right. Yeah, the big bust. Yeah. Wow. So, and, and was that coding? Was that doing? I mean, is that what the internship was? It was in coding and web development. Yeah, it, it was a couple, it, it it was a three-month internship, but paid internship, but it turned into, after a couple of weeks, it turned into a job offer. And then, yeah, I was writing code, mostly Perl, some Java. Um, yeah. Yeah. So then when you get laid off and that's early in your career and you're like, you know, what do I do? What what did you do? Well, so I was lucky enough. I, I So I did not get laid off at that particular time. I did get laid off later in my career and I'm happy to talk about that experience, but um in suitably vague terms. Um, but uh, I did not get laid off at this time, but it was still, and everyone who's ever been through a layoff where they're the ones laid off, that's really, really, really hard. It's also frankly hard if you're not the one laid off because you have more work to do. You watch your friends go who you, you know, you like and you worked with. Um, but I ended up actually staying on for a, a, another year or, or two and then um, I think partly because I was cheap and a good worker, but it's hard to know, right? You never know how these kind of things work out um, unless you're kind of in the room with the spreadsheet. But um, then I quit and I traveled for a bit and then I went and started my own consulting company um, where it was like, it was a one man shop. It was consulting makes it sound more grandiose than it was, but basically I was contracting selling software development services. Well, it's still, that's pretty interesting, right? You took the, not everybody takes that shot. A lot of people uh, do it for other people, but to take it on your own, uh, that's pretty awesome. And and did that last uh, a bit of time or did you realize uh, paying for your own benefits was problematic? Well, I was lucky. Um, I was uh, single at the time and had a pretty low burn rate, personal burn rate. So I actually ended up contracting for about seven years oh, nice. um, and kind of a variety of clients, a couple of anchor clients for a long period of time. And eventually one of them said, hey, what do you want to become an employee? And I converted to employee with them. Yeah. That's always a nice deal though, right? You've You've proven yourself for a long time and then you have a little bit of bargaining opportunity there to, <laughs> to take well, on. <laughs> you know them and they know you, right? And that's right. one of the scariest things about moving to any new job is like, you just don't know what you don't know. But luckily I had the opportunity to, to work with somebody that I did know. Yeah, that's interesting. 
but but I really really like that you had your own thing. Like I, I've known a lot of people. I've had my own thing on the side a couple times, right? And there's a lot of pain and suffering to that, but there's a lot of joy to controlling your own destiny. Yeah. But at the same time, uh, to have an opportunity to then roll right in, uh, that's awesome. Now you had mentioned that you you know you've had a variety of of roles as you've gone. What what was next after that role? Yeah, and actually, I would, I would say one thing um, about the the consulting is that you will never appreciate salespeople or accounts receivable people as much when you're working at a big company as you do if you've done it yourself. Because chasing money and chasing sales is 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 hard work and is absolutely a skill. So. Um, and I, as a younger developer, I was much more dismissive of like, well, why are these people, what are they doing here? Like uh, they sell this thing and then I have to deliver it and whatever. Um, so my eyes, uh, some of the scales came out of my eye and I in that situation. Um, after that, I, so I worked at a, that, that, uh, person who wanted to hire me for a couple of years and it was a startup in the real estate space. And so they actually uh, had two founders and one left, and that opened up the opportunity for me to kind of step into an engineering leadership role. And that was my first engineering leadership role where I managed people, I hired people, I I worked with a budget, and that was a good experience. It was also fun because it was small enough. It was a team of three or four uh, that I was still hands on the code and able to do things. Um, That was kind of the next step in my career. Yeah, those are fun jobs. I've, I've I've been fortunate enough to work for a company where I was the third employee behind a husband and wife. And I know exactly what you mean, right? It's scrappy. You're involved in the sales and the delivery and the feedback, right? And, you know, and, and so you get that entire pick, having to manage your own tech support, right? In your own company, oh, right? Man. Your own server support, <laughs> your, all of it. When you have four people, like you're talking about, it's all those four people. There's nobody else to do it. <clears throat> yeah. So well, that's, uh, to, be, to be fair, the team was four. The engineering team was four. The, yeah. the company was much bigger than that. Okay. So there were other folks, but, but yeah, so, but I, still like when you can like fix a bug and talk to somebody yeah. and they're happy that you fix that bug, like that is such a gratifying experience. <laughs> that is, that is, um, and so then, and so then what next? Yeah. So then I, um, after a couple of years of engineering management, I, and kind of in that role, I decided that, that I wanted to try something else and end up going back in consulting for a couple of years. Mm. Uh, again, kind of back on my own, uh, worked for a really, really large software company for a few months. And that was an interesting experience, um, another startup. And then, I saw something come across my email where it was a co someone looking for a co-founder hmm. and she had um, it was in a space that I was really interested in. I had a side project of a directory of CSAs, which people might know is like a farm share or something like that, where you basically give a farmer a little bit of money in the spring and then they give you vegetables throughout the growing year. I had a directory. So I was interested in local food at that time. And she was building basically Airbnb for commercial kitchen space was how she pitched it. Hmm. And what really stood out to me, we kind of did this dance of like trying to figure out if we were going to be good co-founders because she had never, um, because we didn't know each other, right? Like it was just an email across, I think through some, some website that I'd signed up for, but um, we did kind of all the background checks that we could, you know, the reference checks um, we, saw how we worked together. She kind of talked me through um, 
what she had done up to that point, which if you're uh, looking to be a tech co-founder, I absolutely, absolutely recommend doing this if you can, because there's a ton of people out there with have really interesting and great ideas, but they can't execute as well as you need them to. When you, when someone's a CEO or a salesperson, they need to be able to execute, even if they can't write code. So we did some of that. And then um, after that, we signed the papers. And this is another piece of advice I would say to your listeners who are thinking about being founders is write the divorce papers before you get married. And there's books out there. Nolo is a great book. It was recommended to me by some people. Um, you know, there's other sites out there, but like we did that while we were in the honeymoon phase of like, what's going to happen if one of us wants to leave early, if there's like a change in control, like if we need to take investment, cause we really didn't take any investment at that point. She hadn't raised any money. Um, and I think that was really crucial later on in the story when I actually ended up parting that it wasn't acrimonious because we've kind of been through all the hard work up front. That's very good advice. I've known a lot of people who struck out to the startup world and you're right. It, it, I mean, they say, but uh, 70, 80% startups don't make it right. And so, as you said, if you plan for that uh, up front, then you'll have a better, I mean, it's still a sucky end, right? But you'll have a better go of it because you planned it out ahead yeah. of time. Although to just be, totally up front like this the startup is still going they, they yeah. succeeded in but i just i i took an exit ramp basically sure sure yeah so uh, and then you were a cto was that for this or for something else yeah that was a cto and you know here's another thing i another piece of advice i have i have lots of advice jeremy <laughs> that's good that's um good. you know cto at a two-person startup is an important role, but is absolutely not the same as a CTO at a 10 person, 50 person, 500 person startup, 5,000 persons uh, company, right? So I was a CTO and I think the biggest team I had was like two or three people. Um, but I was really, really involved with product. I was really involved. I, I basically was on call for, for two years um, if there were any tech issues. And so it was a really great role for me. I grew a lot. I also connected with a group of other CTOs and engineering managers, which was really, really helpful that I, if I hadn't been taking that CTO leap, I don't think I would have met them or mm -hmm. certainly not been able to have the same kind of conversations with them. Um, yeah. So that was my goal there. That raises a, 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 a you, you had a tip there that was kind of hidden in what you said. And that tip is as you're going throughout your career, network right mm -hmm. meet the people your peers like-minded as you go because that's the best time to meet them right and then later on if you want to talk to one of those people you you've got that connection absolutely and you know i think it needs to be you, people think about networking they think about going to some schmoozy bar right like okay. and as tech folks that is absolutely an option although i think less than it was in 1999 <laughs> but <laughs> There's also an email list you can join. There are online communities you can join, Discords, uh, Reddits, um, Slacks. Uh, and those are all great ways of interacting pe with people more asynchronously. And, and the connection is going to be weaker for sure, but they'll still be there. And you can still always kind of reach out to someone and say, hey, you know, can I, you know, I saw you had a connection to person XYZ and their company ABC. I'm interested in them and get into a background, you know, a soft reference check or things like that. And that's really helpful in growing your career. Yeah. Um, so um, 
at what point did you decide that a book would be in the offing? So you, I, I heard you say, you know, right? You went to school to be a science fiction author. Now this is definitely not science fiction, um, but right, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a good help book for people or in their career, which yeah. I, I, I value, I heavily value giving back to people early in their career. So yep. uh, kudos. Yep. What, what was, what was the, you know, what drove you to write the book? Sure. So I'm going to flash the book real quick yeah, here. I have a copy. Um, <laughs> so the the story of the book is that I actually at the real estate company, we ended up prototyping a mobile application. I uh, used something called Cordova, which was used to be called PhoneGap. It's a mobile mm -hmm. tech. And I wrote a little ebook there, like a 40, 50 page ebook there and did some publication of it. Or I self-published, I should say. I did some promotion of it and uh, made about 700 bucks for a lot, a lot of hours of work. And as soon as I published it, we decided not to go down that mobile app path and I never updated it. And so I said to myself, hmm, if I ever want to write a book again, I definitely want it to be something more evergreen. Mm -hmm. um, as a startup CTO, I was also in some media groups that were talking to some people that were kind of new in their career. Um, and then also after the startup I left, I went to a consulting company where I was an engineering manager again and a senior dev and was just talking to a lot of newer devs and had a lot of interesting conversations about that. And I know the job market's really hard for new devs right now. It was still kind of tough back in 2016, 20, uh, 2017, 2018. Um, I didn't, it definitely not as hard as now, but it was still tough. And so I, I started to think, hmm, I wonder if there's like, the roots of a, an evergreen book here. And my rule with books is the first thing you should do if you write a book, if you want to write a book is write 10 titles of like chapters of the book or sections of the book. And then if you, if you can't do that, you shouldn't write the book, mm -hmm. then write 10 blog posts. And if you can't do that, you shouldn't write the book because it's gonna be a lot less fun to write a book than it will be to write 10 blog posts. <laughs> And so I did that and actually I started up a whole new blog and I did that for a couple of years and just to kind of share my knowledge, I was highlighting other people's uh, knowledge as well. And then in 2019, I talked to somebody at a conference about who was, who was at a book publisher and she kind of said, Hey, here's the forms to fill out. And, you know, we can make this happen. Um, and you know, anybody you talk to at a conference, who's a book publisher is probably like in sales, right. Cause their job is to recruit authors. Right. So she might've made it seem a little bit easier than, than it was, but things got busy. And then I kind of set aside and then I ended up getting laid off kind of in early 2020. And I was like, Hmm, well this actually, I, I didn't get laid off before I decided in early 2020 that I wanted to start to revisit this. I filled out the forms and then I ended up getting laid off and that was kind of the impetus to kind of push it all the way through. So I took a lot of the existing content on the blog and revised it, um, expanded it. And then I wrote some new pieces as well. And that's what turned into the book. Nice. First revision since it's going to be evergreen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, I like that concept because there are, uh, it's definitely with that title and that topic, right? It's it, it absolutely lends itself to evergreen. There will always be new things you learn throughout your career or hear from others that you can then encapsulate into an update and say, hey, some new things, some yep. additional thoughts or whatever. And 
Um, I like that. I like that because uh, there's the one and done books and they're great. They, they're shelf you know, fodder, if you will. And then there's the books that you can keep going back to um, and very useful or, or pass on even pass on to somebody else because they're very useful. Yep. So I, I like that. And then developer relations, which you're doing today. So it's interesting because you've had a variety of, of jobs through your career. Um, the book makes sense that you would, you know, you have a care for developers. Um, that you care how they start. Yeah. Um, how did how did you end up deciding to take a role in developer relations? Yeah, so after uh, the consulting company where I kind of started to write the blog po- blog post that led to this book, um, I ended up talking to another company and they were looking for Devrel, and I had been blogging for about. Uh, since basically since 2003. So I've been blogging for a number of years. I knew that I liked writing. Um, I had done some technical training actually during the, when I was a startup CTO to, to fund this, the, the mm-hmm. project. And so I knew I like talking to people and I just thought I would take a, a go at, at DevRel, which was fairly new to me at that time and um, transition to that, that startup didn't end up working out, but um I did uh, find another company that was looking for developer relations. So I think it was kind of just a combination of a realization that I was interested in how to communicate and educate developers. And then also, frankly, there was, um, I didn't, because of my skill set, I didn't feel like I could go be like a staff engineer at a, at a bigger company because of kind of where I'd been. Um, mm-hmm. It's possible I could have with some study and, and I could have gotten in and kind of levered up, but um, that wouldn't have helped with the writing aspect of it or the speaking aspect of what I was interested in with my career. And then at the smaller companies that I'd been in a couple of times, I'd taken a couple of swings at engineering management and I just wasn't having it, right? It, was, it wasn't the right fit for me. Um, it is absolutely a skill, Um I, that I admire in other people. I, I think of engineering management is to engineering as American football is to, is to world football or soccer, right? Like there's some similarities. You score points in both of them and they're both on a field, but like they're, they're a totally different skill set. And right. so um, I determined that I wanted to stay at a small company, but I also didn't want to be an engineering manager, but I still want to progress in my career. That limits the number of things that you can do. But developer relations is really important. I've seen it in the industry kind of take off, especially in the product companies, right? That are trying to get adoption of their product. They're, 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 they do that by building community. That's the latest thing that's probably in the last, gosh, five to 10 years been a focus, right? Yeah. Uh, the Microsofts of the world do it really well. And uh, and a lot of other companies have adopted that, that uh, aspect. And the developers benefit, the companies benefit because yep. they're using the product more effectively, which means they're not, you know, knocking it down and saying bad things about it, right? So there's, totally. there is a there is a there is a, a a circle of life, if you will, there that is beneficial to everybody involved. Um, how, did you have to start from the ground up and build a community at uh, at at this company? Um, at the the startup fusion off, the, the fusion off. Fusion off. yeah 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 um so there was a little bit there they had had a, a kind of one other employee try to do some stuff there um but i you know and they'd set up a forum um at that point the company was that fusion off was small enough that the cto was on the forum answering questions and things like that and so i was able to kind of take that and run with it um i did have the benefit of a fairly mature product it was 
when I joined, they had been building this product in one form or another for like five or six years. Um, not necessarily full time, and it's definitely grown since I joined a couple of years ago. But um, so I was in the lucky position of not having. How do I put this politely? Sometimes developer relations people are put in the position of having to to make promises that product might not be able to deliver on. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't in that situation. So I was just more, in fact, in some cases, the product did more than there was documentation for. So I had the luxury of being able to be like, oh, cool. I can play around with this and then write up documentation that will help other people discover it. But the functionality is rock solid. Nice. Yeah, you're right. I, I can see you're peeking back to your startup days, right? When you're building a product in those early, early days, and you're trying to gain adoption because you got to show value to the investors, but the product may not be there yet. And yeah, uh, yeah. I, and as a developer myself, I've experienced that uh, in my career where I've adopted something and then found out its maturity level wasn't quite there yet. Not yeah. to say it doesn't get there eventually and that it's not a rock solid thing to invest in, but sometimes you got to be patient, right? But in this case, you were very lucky to uh, have a, a product that was more mature. I, that's fantastic, right? Yeah. Um, I, I have some great friends that do developer relations. They have a blast with it. They're dynamic people. They go to conferences and speak, right? Sure. They speak on that topic plus other topics. Um, and that and it brings awareness to the company, brings awareness that there's a uh, competent leadership in this DevRel space for a given entity, right? Which then attracts developers who are looking for somebody interesting to pay attention to. Yep, definitely. Although I will say like, when I joined, I, like I said, I joined in kind of 2020 in FusionAuth. I joined FusionAuth in 2020 and it was kind of different world, right? As you know. Right. <laughs> um, and so I, again, in some ways I had luxury of like being able to really be kind of a written um, or a writing focused DevRel. And so a lot of documentation, a lot of uh, blog posts and things like that, some videos, but I didn't have to go try to do the speaking circuit. Or if I did the speaking circuit, it was the Zoom circuit. Right. And so um, anybody who's started in DevRel in 2020 had a totally different experience, I think, than people who did it, you know, even two years earlier. And, and I don't know that that's necessarily recovering. I attend so many conferences fully remote now that yeah. there's pot, pros and cons, right? There's the, You miss out on some of the human interaction components of it, but I'm not paying for travel. I'm not yeah. telling my family, hey, I'll see you in a week, Right. I'm able to easily do my work and attend a conference. And so pros and cons. I mean, I I will say like, we also, FusionAuth also sponsors some conferences and I've talked to some other DevRels and that's kind of the missing thing. I think online conferences are awesome for speakers because Mm -hmm. they're not having travel and they get a different kind of interaction and they're awesome for attendees because of all the reasons you just said. Right. Um, But there's a third leg of a conference and sponsors have a much harder time in online conferences. We don't need to talk about that because that's not a topic of this, but just- No, I agree, you know, agreed. Yeah, we can have another a whole nother conversation on that. Totally, I, totally, totally. Yeah. So as you've gone through your career, um, what's something you've seen that you wish just was done differently, right? You, you, you have uh, something that could be changed. It could be done better or more efficient, or maybe, maybe the challenge is very large and we just need to start thinking about how we might be able to change it. You don't even have the solution, right? I'm not asking you to be a solutioner, but what's something we should look at and consider? Sure. So I think that it's, this is, this is a really hard question because I think sometimes, and this is probably 
I'm not going to put this politely because I don't think it's a necessarily a polite thing to do. I think sometimes developers are precious. Sometimes developers think they're more important <laughs> than other people. Um, and lots of times companies treat them that way because they're rarer or because they have skill sets that can be leveraged. But um and I and by the way, I definitely thought this, right? I have a blog post from 2004 talking about the arrogance of developers. And yeah. I think the example that I used from that was that I was reviewing a, a legal document as a developer. And why was I doing that? Why I think I was competent at doing that. Um, and so I lay out the reasons. But so I guess I wish that developers would have more empathy for end users, but also for other people that help put software together. Because any software business, even if you're like a single person SaaS, you're leveraging talents from people across all different parts of the spectrum. And uh, I think it's um, basically self, it, it's self-serving and it's a little, um, makes us look foolish to think that we're the centers of the universe and masters of the universe. Mm. Yeah, I wonder, I was going to ask, and maybe not true, if it's not in your book, it should be in the next revision, right? That as you're starting your dev career, start it with empathy. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I frame it exactly in that uh, terms, I'll have to, I'll have to check. But, <laughs> but I, I, I will say, I don't think you can ever go wrong with being empathetic towards your end users. It Sometimes it's more work or empathetic to other people. Um, or to the sales team. Yes. Or to the the product manager who's trying to wrangle the requirements for you yep. and build out your user stories and make them understandable to you so you can figure out what it's going to totally. take to build it, right? Totally. There, and to the people who run the infrastructure, who are like, "Why is your code leaking memory?" You know, totally, memory, totally. Right? There's a. It, it, I think it goes a long way to be an empathetic person in today's technological world. There was a day where you had the person that you didn't upset, the tech right. guy who knew right. everything, where all the bodies were buried and right. held all the keys and you couldn't do anything without that person. But that's not the day anymore. Yep. And I will say one thing is, I mean, being empathetic doesn't mean you're a, a rug that people walk all right. over, right? It means right. setting boundaries and you can be, I mean, that's all the old, the the old uh, line between being nice and being kind, right? Like sometimes to be kind to people, you actually have to tell them hard things and that aren't very nice. You can be empathetic with somebody and understand where they're coming from and still say, hey, I have these other priorities and or we've made this decision already and this is just the decision. So that's good. So what's what's next for Fusion Auth? What's next for you? Yeah. So at Fusion Auth, we've been growing really tremendously. Um, I think I mentioned um, I was an early employee and we've since I joined and we're bootstrapped, by the way, so we haven't taken any funding um, since I've joined. We have. Uh, grown by 5x, I want to say, in terms of employee and um, similar kind of numbers in terms of revenue. Um, and so we're excited to, I mean, so here's the thing, like, and this actually is an interesting point for your, all your users or all your listeners. Sorry, they're not users, they're listeners. <laughs> um, that something that can be really, really, really important to your company doesn't really register on anybody else's radar. And an example of this from FusionAuth is, is Auth0 being acquired by Okta. If your you, listeners aren't in the identity space or they are not super familiar with those companies, they're two giants in, in the identity space. But I remember when that happened and it was mentioned on a couple of podcasts as kind of like a, a throwaway line, like an aside, but it was like a, a, a really existential thing for us because it opened up 
some doors. Um, and so we're continuing to walk through those doors, talking to people who are, for whatever reason, kind of unhappy with uh, their current solution or um, at least looking around. Um, but as far as kind of, uh, you know, my role at Fusion Auth, we're continuing to kind of revise our documentation. We're trying to make it easier for our uh, newer users. Um, kind of paradoxically, given the book that I wrote, a lot of the documentation I wrote for Fusion Auth was really aimed at kind of people who are familiar with Fusion Auth and kind of experts in identity. And so we are, have a real big push this year to make things easier for people who are just trying to get identity put into their application. And they don't care about OAuth or OIDC or the authorization code grant or anything like that. Um, the other thing that is kind of a, a new project for me is I actually have a, a sub stack I, I started a couple months ago that is focused just on the customer identity and access management space. Hmm. So it's going to be calling out videos and articles and not just fusion auth stuff. It's kind of vendor neutral. Um, but I think the idea of customer identity access management has been around for a little while, but there's, I think also because of Auth0's acquisition, there's just been an explosion of companies doing interesting things in this space. And I want to kind of keep my um, uh, finger on the pulse. And that's actually another tip for your listeners is if you want to learn a space, start a newsletter or a blog mm -hmm. about that space and it will force you to keep up to date with, with developments. Yeah. It's like many things like, uh, if you start something where people can comment on your work, you'll then begin some dialogues, if you will, we'll call them dialogues, dialogues where you'll yeah. learn some things, uh, both wrong and right. But because you always got to research what people say, but uh -huh. it gives you an opportunity for interaction. And it's instead of being just your own, uh, sounding, room of your you know, your own space where you're hearing yourself talk it, now you got an opportunity to reverberate and figure out what what does it really mean right in the grander scheme so that's that is great advice i remember uh, blogging as a means to do that when i was an early developer i would blog here's i figured out this code challenge and here's the code i figured out that solved this specific thing and mm -hmm. for me it was self-documentation so in case i ever needed it when i went to another company but also you know you learn, you learn as you try to express, like I figured out how to code it, but now how do I express how I did it to somebody else? Totally. Right. So uh, in your case, right, how do you express uh, things that are happening in the identity management space so that other people understand what you're talking about? Uh, that's a big thing. And I work in government. So zero trust is the, right. the term of the day, right? And identity right. management is the first pillar. Right. That was that, uh, the big um, executive order, right? Uh, yes, huge executive came order out last yeah. year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a big, big deal for government. We gotta uh, get on board, and you know, the government's always one to two years behind everything else. So yeah, yeah, no, that, that's great, and I'm I'm glad that uh, it it sounds like that was a good step forward in just in terms of securing all kinds of aspects um, of our daily lives. So it's really right. great. Well, thank you so much for coming on the uh, podcast. You know, uh, I, I've enjoyed this conversation, Dan. We have a similar background and similar interests. So uh, yeah. it makes it a very easy conversation. I, I really appreciate what you're doing for Fusion Auth and uh, this developer uh, uh, relations thing is big as a former developer. Uh, keep doing it, do the good work, do the good fight. And uh, thank you so much. Yeah, Jeremy, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the chance.